Good morning. Great opening scripture, Bill. That, that really sums it up for us this morning. We, we're going to be talking about what it means to be a hero. You know, when I think about heroes, the, the one distinguishing characteristic is a hero runs into danger when others' lives are at stake, willing to jeopardize his or her own safety in order to save others. Our world has a number of heroes. I think of our first responders, I think of our police officers, our military, those that we hold in in honor and high regard. Those who would step up and count their life while important to them, not more important than being who God has called them to be. Now, as we think of the heroes of the faith, and we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 21, Paul certainly qualifies as a hero. Last week when we were together, as you're turning to Acts chapter 21, Paul was speaking with the Ephesian elders on Miletus, and he said these words. He said in verse 24, However, my, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul was a hero, and there were many heroes of the faith, and even during the time of the book of Acts, there were many. We've spoken about a number of them. But the book of Acts is primarily written about Paul and his ministry. It is a history of the early church. It's also an account written by Luke, who was part of the missionary team that accompanied Paul. And so a lot of what we have documents just where they went, what they did, how they lived, how God worked through them. But in this section this this morning, we're going to see that as Paul is about to witness in Jerusalem, he's on his way to Jerusalem, the third missionary journey has really come to an end, and now he finds himself, and and those that are traveling with him, uh, traveling by sea, making his way back to ultimately Caesarea in Judea, and then finally in Jerusalem. I recap just a little bit from last week. Remember, they had had an extremely emotional visit with the elders of the church of Ephesus on Miletus. Paul had asked the elders to join him in Miletus that he might share his heart with them. And he shared his heart with them indeed. In fact, as we closed last week's service, we saw that the elders accompanied him to the ship. He and his team, they get on the the, the ship to set sail for Jerusalem, and they're weeping, they're crying, they're praying, because Paul had said, you won't see me again. Now, as Paul heads towards Jerusalem, all along the way, and we'll see this again today, the the Spirit of the Lord is warning him, you're going to be challenged, You're, you're heading into danger. Things are going to happen that are going to jeopardize your personal freedom and safety. But at no point is the Spirit telling him these things so he can run the other way. Rather, he's being encouraged to know what to expect when he gets there. So as the Lord speaks to us, and as we're challenged to be heroes of the faith, just because we know that God is calling us into potentially dangerous and difficult and challenging situations... Don't take that as the Lord giving you the opportunity to run the other way. Quite the contrary. In fact, you're being inspired and encouraged to stand and be counted for him. So that you, like Paul, can 
finish that task, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning and we open your word together, with humility in our hearts, we do ask that we would be inspirational figures as well. That as parents, those of us who are parents here today would be able to inspire their children and even grandchildren to go and to serve the Lord. For those who are ministering to family members and co-workers and neighbors, loved ones, may all of us be able to inspire others with our courage and our bravery, but not, not something that's generated from us or that comes from our own hearts, but that comes from an anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The purpose that we have, the divine purpose that you've given us to testify to the gospel of grace often calls us to go into danger. Lord, may we be brave enough to do so. May we be heroes of the faith. May we aspire to be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first we have a travel log. And it starts by, we read here in verse 1, after we, Luke writes, after we had torn ourselves away from them, that is the elders, the Ephesian elders, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kaz. The next day, we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. And after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria, and we landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Not much to say, it's pretty self-explanatory, Essentially, they're sailing along the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and to the south of Cyprus, until they arrive in the Middle East, in Tyre, in what is referred to as Phoenicia. Now, some of these places that are mentioned, they're they're actual places. We know where they are. They're they're unimportant to the narrative. But places like Kaz, Rhodes, Patera, Phoenicia, we know where these are. So many of your Bibles will have a map of Paul's missionary journeys and his trip to Jerusalem and then also to Rome. And the reason we're able to map that out is because Luke did such a great job of giving us all of the stops along the way. And it helps us to understand where Paul and his team were able to minister and how God called them to travel. Now, Phoenicia in particular was a territory. It's within the province of Syria, and it's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So they're getting very close to Jerusalem. Of course, Cyprus, we probably, all of us, if we've looked at a map of the Mediterranean, know where Cyprus is. It's a beautiful island off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. They didn't stop there. They sailed to the south of it. And they end up in a city named Tyre, which comes up often in both the Old and New Testaments. It was a Phoenician commercial city north of Caesarea, which is their next destination, again, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So just making their way, but remember, all along the way, they're getting closer and closer to danger, closer and closer to persecution, trials, difficulties. Let me ask you a question. As you make your way through life, as you travel through life, as you make the lefts and the rights along the way, do you find yourself becoming safer and safer, more comfortable, Experiencing more convenience? Is that the goal? <clears throat> I can remember years ago, had a couple of friends that got into some of these multi-level marketing schemes, and that's what they are generally, because someone gets rich and someone gets poor. I'll call that a multi-level marketing scheme. And the goal of these schemes was pretty much stated to be financial independence. 
Now, there's things about that that bother me. One, financial independence implies that money is probably the most important thing on your agenda. Independence implies that you're not looking to rely on God or yourself or anyone else. You're, you're looking to rely on others so that you can be independent of the concerns regarding finances. Now, if you read the book of Proverbs, you'll find that there is honor and nobility and hard work taking care of yourself and your family. That quickly uh, wealth, quickly gotten, ill-gotten gain, seldom leads to good things. How many stories have we heard of people that hit the lotto? Now, I, I don't play that, but they hit the numbers, and then their life goes down the toilet. How many people get very successful, become very successful in, in a career in athletics or, or, or Hollywood or, or in some way, and very shortly, we read an article of how they took their own lives or destroyed their lives with drug and alcohol. Why does that happen? Because, brothers and sisters, there's an honor in working hard, if you're able to, providing for your family and living an honest life. All of those other things, all those get-rich-quick schemes, seldom end well. In fact, I'm really at a loss to think of anyone who's done well with that. I'm sure there are examples, but this idea of financial independence scares me because if you give me enough money and enough time, I can fill in for the devil, and you'll never know he went on vacation. Let's be honest with ourselves. If I'm idle for a little while, I tend to gravitate towards trouble. If I have the money to buy whatever I want, whew, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to spend that cash. So I'm perfectly content in life having enough and being busy. Because by being busy about the Lord's business and the matters of life, and having enough money, as the scripture talks about, not so much that it causes my heart to drift from God, but not so little that I have to steal to survive— If you're in that place today, you may be thinking, I I haven't experienced the American dream. No, no, you actually have. You actually have. In Spanish, right? Estoy muy contento means I'm content. But it actually translates into English. I'm happy. Why can't we be happy with contentment? Why is it that our world tells us we need more? Well, I'm going on about this, but I just want you to understand that when we have everything we need, when we accept the fact that God has provided for all of our needs, and we, we, we do the things that God has called us to do, and we find ourselves in the places that God has called us to be, we oftentimes experience joy, the joy of the Lord, and peace like we would never have experienced if we had everything we wanted, were completely safe, and never risked a, a hair on our head. I can think of the more dangerous moments of my life in Central America doing missions. And some of those were some very happy times, some very joyful experiences. But it was dangerous. And I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I'm not the guy that snowboards. I'm not the guy that bungee jumps. I'm not looking to kill myself. But I'll tell you what, when I step out to do what God has called me to do, and it causes me to experience some level of discomfort, inconvenience, and costs me something, I find my true purpose in being someone who does what God has called me and built me to do. Paul understood this. He gave up a lot of those things, if not all of those things, 
to go into potentially dangerous situations. Just getting on a ship and sailing along that route that we talked about was dangerous, as we'll see in future studies, very dangerous. So I'm, I'm sharing with you a principle. We talk about being a hero. What does it mean to be a hero? I remember a movie I saw one I, once. I won't quote it, but you guys probably know which one it is. The, says that the, a working man, he's the true hero. And you know something? I really feel strongly about this. We should aspire to be hard workers who live our lives and give our lives for others. So that's Paul. That's his team. That's who they are. And then what happens? Look at verse 4. Finding the disciples there, we, Luke writes, stayed with them seven days. And through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. And all the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out, out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. And after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. Interesting situation. It says that, this is kind of peculiar, it says, Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now that would seem to contradict what, what I'm saying today. That would seem to suggest that the Spirit's saying, Paul, don't go. Don't go. And some have actually suggested that Paul was so stubborn that even though God told him not to go to Jerusalem, he went anyway. And there are some people that interpret it that way. I think the more likely interpretation is through the Spirit, it was revealed, as we've already been told in previous chapters, that Paul would face imprisonment and difficulty. In fact, in verse 22 of the previous chapter, Paul said, and now, now look at the balance here, compelled by the Spirit, in chapter 20, verse 22, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, that is specifically what will happen, but in verse 23, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Well, just because prisons and hardships are facing him doesn't mean he's not supposed to go. He's, he's told us, and I trust Paul, that the Spirit was compelling him to go. Has the Spirit ever compelled you to do something that was going to cost you something? I mean, when we lose our life for his sake, we find it, right? Have you ever lost a job because of your convictions? Ever walked out of a movie theater in the midway because of what was going on in there you just couldn't agree with? I can think of many times where you have to stand up and be counted for your faith and your beliefs. And it's not always easy. It's, it, it's not always enjoyable. It's not always desirable. But understand something. Just because things are going to be difficult, that doesn't mean that's an encouragement to walk the other way. Can you imagine if every missionary... Every pastor, every ministry leader, every Sunday school teacher, nursery worker, if every one of them said, well, I'm only going to do that which costs me nothing, or it sounds like it's a little difficult, I'm out. But what was happening here is people loved this man. They loved Paul. And so when the Spirit revealed to them what was going to happen in Paul's life, they, given over to their emotions and their sentimentality, tried to encourage him not to do what would cost him something. It doesn't mean that the Spirit was telling him not to go. The Spirit was revealing what would happen when he went. But we as people, as individuals, oftentimes 
Look at the revelation of God and decide because of the revelation of God, we should walk the other way. Does that make more sense? It makes more sense to me. In fact, it's very human, isn't it? If someone you love were to come to you and say, well, you know, the Lord has called me to sneak into North Korea, get arrested, thrown into prison so that I can minister the gospel to those that are imprisoned there, what would you say? In fact, if the Spirit revealed that to you, you'd probably begin a campaign of having them committed mentally because you'd say, what is wrong with you? I've heard many stories of parents finding out, and not necessarily Christian parents, finding out that their children want to go in the ministry or go into missions. And their reaction oftentimes is very similar. What's wrong with you? Because they love their children. They don't want anything to happen to them. Parents of young children, pray for your children. But the day is going to come where God is going to call them forward to do things that you may not be comfortable with. And by that I mean godly things. Things that might cost them something, even their lives. Who are we? Who are you? Who am I to question the compelling Holy Spirit? But they loved him. And so often love seeks to protect and save And keep from harm. We understand that there's nothing wrong with the sentiment. But all of our sentimentality and our love and our feelings have to be surrendered to God Almighty. Who directs our children, our grandchildren, our loved ones. Amen? And that's difficult. You don't think so until your kid says, Oh, the church is going on a missions trip to the Middle East. To Lebanon. Or to Syria. Or Uganda. Or some other place that you decide is unsafe. I've seen it before. I'll see it again. I think Paul, being compelled by the Spirit to do what God had called him to do, had a lot of people that cared so much about him, they would have preferred that Paul went the other way. But that's not the heart of Paul. I think we know that a hero runs into danger. A hero is inspired to put his or her life on the line in order to accomplish the task that God has given them to do. Amen? And that's what we see here, I think, very clearly. So they stay with these disciples in Tyre while they're waiting. Basically, the the ship is unloading its cargo. And so they're going to set sail in a week. So you have a week. Why not spend time with the disciples? And Paul explained to them that the Holy Spirit was leading him to travel uh, to Jerusalem, obviously. And the Spirit revealed to many others there what was going to happen. While he didn't know exactly what was going to happen, he knew he would suffer hardship and prison. And... As we've said, he'd been warned over and over again. So it's nothing new here. And when we say the Spirit warned him, it's, it's, I mentioned this last week, it's that the Spirit spoke through prophets in the cities that he visited. But remember, the same Spirit is compelling him to go, preparing him for the challenges. When it's revealed to you that you're going to face difficulty in life, God isn't trying to scare you. He's not trying to shock you. He's not trying to dissuade you. He is preparing you for what's ahead. So, beautiful picture as the church is, is, is begging him not to go, but they accompany him to the ship. And, and he and his team, you know, they're about to set sail for Jerusalem. They, they're getting very close, but they all together kneel down on the beach, pray together before they set sail. 
See, when you get to a place where God is leading you forward or someone you love forward and you're not comfortable with what's happening, that's the best thing to do. Just kneel down and pray. Surrender your heart to God. Hey, I'm going to give you an example that you're probably familiar with. Jesus, the greatest hero of the faith there is, our Savior, our Lord. Remember this. Remember that in all things, we are more than conquerors. Amen? In all things, we are more than conquerors. Jesus, as a man, God, but as a man, said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done when faced with the cross. Did he want to go to the cross? Only a madman would want to go to the cross, and he wasn't. He understood that this was God's will, God the Father's will for God the Son. And he knelt down and he prayed. We're told three times, but it's more of an idiom. Over and over again, he prayed for God to give him the strength to do what he as God the Son had been called to do, as a man had been called to experience. And I know it's hard to understand that. I don't fully understand it myself. I don't know that anyone can, but I know this. Though he didn't, quote-unquote, in his humanity, want to go to the cross, he also, as our Savior, chose to go to the cross in obedience to the Father's will, in the power of the Spirit, to save us. Brothers and sisters, that is the very definition of a hero. The very definition. So Paul, Paul is not Jesus, we're not Jesus, but Paul is moving forward. He's on the move. He's going where God has called him to go. And I'm hoping that this morning's message, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, will simply inspire you to say, Lord, here I am, send me. Now that can be across the hall to work in the Sunday school. It can be to get involved in the worship team. It can be to go on a missions trip, plant a church. It can be many things, but that's up to God. What's up to you is whether or not you're going to resist. Well, let's continue. We read in verse 7, we'll read verses, uh, yeah, we'll just read verse 7. Luke writes, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, uh, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So we'll just stop right there. So they're continuing on their journey sailing south along the coast of Phoenicia until they arrive at Ptolemaeus. By the way, Ptolemaeus, also a maritime city, uh, was named after a man by the name of Ptolemy, and uh, he captured it in 103 B.C. So a lot of Greek names that are used in this area. And then they stayed with the disciples in Ptolemaeus for a day. Why? Again, they had to wait a day to sail, probably restocking and maybe picking up some cargo, we don't know, but on their way to Jerusalem. But then they sail south along the coast of Phoenicia until they arrived in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem, so they're getting closer. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It was the capital of the Roman province of Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. It's the seat, or was the seat, of governors and procurators of Rome, It had a spacious harbor. It was the headquarters for the Roman troops for all of Palestine. It's a very important city. By the way, Caesarea may have also been the home of saints that fled the persecution in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 8. By the way, a persecution that was started by Paul when he was still called Saul of Tarsus. 
Caesarea was at the center of many events in the early church. I'm going to give you a little reminder. In chapter 10, God used Peter to convert Cornelius the centurion and the first Gentiles in this city of Caesarea. Herod Agrippa I was smitten by an angel and eaten of worms while he was speaking in this city in Acts chapter 12. Paul had also sailed to Tarsus from this city when he was fleeing Jerusalem early on in his ministry in chapter 9, verse 30. And Paul had returned to this city after the completion of his second missionary journey because it was a major port like New York. If you're sailing or arriving even by air in this area, you generally fly through that major city or sail into that major city and then go on to wherever it is you're desiring to go. So a lot of people had spent a lot of time in this city, and Paul was one of them. But while he was there, we're told, they stayed with a man who's called Philip the Evangelist. And they stayed for several days before they traveled up to Jerusalem. Now I want to remind you, all of us, as to who Philip the Evangelist was. Back in Acts chapter 6, we're told he was a deacon, a servant in the early church in Jerusalem. He was a Grecian Jew, known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. He was one of the seven men that were chosen by the disciples to minister to widows. His ministry started very simply. There was a need. He stood up to meet the need. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of speaking at a, uh, an event on a Friday morning. And uh, it's an event that Pastor Kurt is involved with the ministry. It's a men's group. And it was real early. I guess I got there at 6.30-something. I woke up about 7.10 when I got there. I still wasn't awake. <laughs> After the coffee, you know, I kind of woke up. But um, as I was there, uh, we had a little Q&A time after I spoke. And one of the questions was, you know, we're talking about being used of God. And, and one of the questions was, well, how do you know the Lord is leading you? How do you know you're supposed to get into a particular ministry? It was a great question. And I basically broke it down. God will show you the need, and then he'll show you how you're prepared to meet that need. Now, what's amazing is sometimes God will show you a need, and you're like, oh, I can do that. And I shared, I guess I shared the example of how, as a musician, when I first got involved in the church in Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, uh, there was a need in the children's ministry for a children's worship leader. And I could play three chords, so I was all set. And there was a need, and I could meet that need. So it was a simple, oh, I'll meet the need. That was kind of how the Lord led me. But then I also shared an example of how when I went on my first missions trip in 2004 to Cuba, <clears throat> and my classic line was, oh, I'm not a missionary. I'm not called to be a missionary. I'm a pastor. That was like, like that was going to hold any weight, you know. I had no missions experience. I didn't know anything about missions. I Learned a lot from Pastor Joe and his wife, Andrew, our missions pastors. And you know what? I, I got news for you. I just went because there was a need. And I was available. So sometimes the need matches up with your ability to meet the need. Sometimes the need matches up with your ability to show up. Sometimes availability is more important than ability. And I can't tell you when God is calling you outside your comfort zone to do something you're not prepared to do, or you feel you're not prepared to do, and, or when God is calling you to use your gifts and your abilities to meet a need. But I can tell you, if you say, Lord, here I am, send me, he'll let you know. 
And sometimes when God calls you to do the thing you feel least prepared to do, and you do it, you experience the power of God in a way that you couldn't otherwise. And that's a pretty awesome thing. So here's what happened with Philip. There was a need. Widows. Pretty needy people. The neediest probably of that time. Philip made himself available to meet that need. But then, because he had a heart to share the gospel with people outside the norm, he proclaimed Christ to the hated Samaritans. I mean, the Jews hated the Samaritans. But remember, Philip is a Grecian Jew, so he's a little bit more open to the idea. And in Acts chapter 8, we read that as he was scattered abroad by the persecution that arose after Stephen's death, a persecution sponsored in part by Paul, he went to this place called Samaria because he was driven out of Jerusalem. And this had happened about 20 years earlier. But you know what's interesting? He went to Samaria. He was faithful to go where God had called him to go. That felt probably for him like, I can do this because he was a gifted speaker and I'm prepared to do this. And there was a need. So he just kind of took his gifts and saw an opportunity and used his gifts to meet the need, which again is a really important way to follow God's leading. But then something else happened, which often does. We find out that the Lord called Philip away from this great revival in Samaria to preach in the desert to the chief officer of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. We read a bit about that in Acts chapter 8 as well. And he ministers the gospel to this man who is a convert to Judaism. And as far as we can tell, the first African convert, an Ethiopian. And he is an official of the court, and he ministers the gospel, and the the man wants to receive Christ, and he says, can I be baptized? He goes in the water to baptize him, and an interesting thing happens. He's instantly caught away by the Spirit after baptizing the man, and we're simply told that he was found at Azotus. That is, the next time anybody saw him, he was in Azotus. What happened? Well, I like to think of it as sort of a a lateral rapture. He just kind of caught up. The word is the same word, caught up. He's caught up, and God moves him from one place to another. Now, what's interesting about that is Philip was completely unprepared to go into the desert. In fact, it made little or no sense. But in obedience, he made himself available to do what he felt God was calling him to do. Again, so that qualifies into that second category where there is a need You're being called to meet it, and you have no clue how to meet it, but you know God is calling you. So he stepped up, he went out there, and of course God worked through him. And then you might be thinking, well, you know, why did God move him to Azotus? Because God had something else for him to do. And that's exactly what happened. And so we find out from Azotus, he preached the gospel along the Mediterranean coast until he came to Caesarea, where 20 years later, he's still ministering. Because that is where God had called him to be. Now, you may think of Paul. Oh, what a great hero. He went here. He went there. He went all over the place. And that's true. But sometimes the hero is the one that simply does what God has called them to do with faithfulness. And so maybe you'll spend the rest of your life doing the ministry you're doing now, whether it's a pastor or a missionary or a Sunday school teacher or a parent. But Philip was faithful, and God worked through Philip. 
He administered in Caesarea for the past 20 years, and now we're told he had a house in the city, so he settled down. You know, God sometimes settles you down. The heroes are not just those that go. Many times the heroes are the ones that stay. You've heard me say this before. I'm in the habit of emptying churches. By that I mean I want everyone to go and do what God has called them to do. But if everyone left, well, we would have to lock the door and say goodnight. So I've seen it over the years. Many people have gone with our blessing and with our prayers. And they go in the Spirit and they minister in the power of the Spirit as God has led them to do so. And we are fully in favor of that. It's wonderful. But we're also blessed by so many of you over the last 20 years who have stayed and ministered here because there's a mission field here to our children, to our young adults, to our older adults. I'm an older adult. I didn't say old. I don't use that description. Older. Older than I was yesterday, at least. So I just want to lay it out there because you may be thinking a hero is someone like Paul, and and indeed it's true, that jeopardizes their lives, you know. But sometimes a hero in the faith is that person, that woman, that man who is so faithful that you can set your watch by them. There's a couple people here I'm not going to call out that if I pull into the parking lot and their car's not here, something must be wrong. And you know what? The faithfulness that many of you have exhibited over these last two decades, and even longer for some of you I've known longer, is inspiring to me. It's inspiring to others. It's a great and wonderful example of what it means to be a hero in the faith. Philip, such a man. And he had four daughters. Four. Kurt, four daughters. <laughs> so here's the thing. They all exercised the gift of prophecy. How would you have liked to have been Philip? Three daughters telling you what to do all the time, and they're always right. So here's the thing. Uh, they were prophets, prophetesses, if you will. And there were prophets and prophetesses in the early church. It's not the first time we've seen it. But there were also those that simply exercised the gift of prophecy. They didn't necessarily call themselves prophets or prophetesses. They simply had this gift. And I want to be clear, prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is speaking the words of God. So it's not predicting the future. It can be. If God chooses to predict the future through someone then that prophet or that person using the gift or or exercising the gift of prophecy is in fact predicting the future because God has given them the idea what it's going to be. But most often, the gift of prophecy is not about predicting the future. It's about speaking to hearts. It's about God speaking through a person. I will say that there are gifts of teaching, evangelism, prophecy. These are communication gifts, encouragement, comfort, rebuke. There are many ways you can speak and be used by God. But, and and again, I would never call myself a a prophet. I don't predict the future for sure. Uh, But I do know this, that I rely on God speaking through me as I teach his word. I can teach God's word and we can learn something and that would be wonderful. But if God chooses to speak through a pastor or a leader or a ministry leader... 
and he applies his word to your heart. Maybe something that was said today or something you hear when you listen to a message on the radio speaks to you personally and you feel that God is speaking to your heart and revealing some truth about yourself, maybe revealing the future, but more importantly, revealing his will and and his desire for your life and maybe encouragement through that. That is the gift of prophecy, and I believe that gift is very much still active today. Maybe not in the same way as the Old Testament with the Old Testament prophets, although I believe that could happen, but certainly in a powerful, applicative way where the Word of God isn't just something you're learning about, it's God speaking to you through His Word. Amen? I rely on that. I don't think you'd be here today if that didn't happen in this church. In fact, you probably shouldn't be. I mean, if you come here and all you learn is the names of cities and, and, and you know, maritime cities in Phoenicia, that's really interesting. That's great. That's not going to do anything for you spiritually. What's important to me as a pastor is that God speaks, not that I speak, that God speaks to your hearts through his word. This man had four daughters that did that. How wonderful. May all of our children have that gift. Amen? What a wonderful testimony. But that's not because the man wasn't a good father. That's because the man was a good father. He and his wife obviously raised their children to seek the Lord. And these four unmarried daughters, young women, young, basically that's a way of just saying they were young, young women, women, I'm going to say it again, women were used by God to speak his word to hearts. That's very important to me. To understand that is to understand how God works today. I want to remind you of something. The anointing of the Spirit, according to Acts chapter 2, which quotes from Joel, differed greatly from the anointing of the Spirit in the Old Testament, even though there were female prophets in the Old Testament as well. We're told in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit came upon all Israel's men and women, young and old. You can't deny that. And we're also told they received the gift of prophecy as they preached the word of God, the word of the Lord, and they received the word of prophecy, and they did so through dreams and through visions. So, when we're talking about heroes today, we can also talk about heroines. We can talk about women and men, young and old. Basically, we're even talking about some teenagers. Is there anyone here today that is exempt from the calling of God to be used by God in this way? No. So we should all be inspired to be inspirational people. Inspiring to others as we're inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, then something else happens, and we'll close with this, and then we'll receive communion. In verse 10, Luke writes, After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Well, that's really encouraging, isn't it? But still the truth. When we heard this, now notice Luke says, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because they loved him. 
But again, sentimentality can get in the way of the will of God if we allow it. Bravery and courage must supersede caution and cowardice if we're going to be used by God in these dark days. So Agabus the prophet comes from Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. He warns Paul he's going to be in prison. He's getting a little bit more information now. You'll remember Agabus. He showed up in Acts chapter 11. He had predicted, he did predict the future. He predicted a severe famine that would affect the entire Roman world. That became a truth, and they were prepared for it. But now he's predicting the future. So Paul knows exactly what's going to happen. And he used his belt to make it clear. The Jews of Jerusalem were going to take him into custody, and they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. That sounds like the fate that our Savior suffered, doesn't it? Well, Paul's team and the church in Caesarea begged Paul not to go. Please, don't go, Paul. Now we know exactly what's going to happen. We love you. We care about you. We don't want you to do this. We also know what Paul did because he was compelled by the Spirit. And this is what Paul says. In verses 13 and 14, we read, Then Paul answered, and this must have been very difficult, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up (laughs) and said, and these are the very important words we close with, the Lord's will be done. Now, isn't that exactly what Jesus said? Nevertheless, your will be done. That is what I'm encouraging you to pray this morning as you receive communion. You can say, here I am, Lord, send me. You can say, the Lord's will be done. It all comes down to surrender to God's will. Oh, Paul was uncertain as to exactly what would happen in detail, but he knew this much. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. It's not going to go well. But notice, as we've said already, he was fully prepared to suffer, even die, in order to fulfill the Lord's will in his life. I call that a hero. I call that a hero. He only wanted to finish the race that the Lord had given him to run. He only wanted to complete the task that the Lord had given him to do. And he didn't consider his life more valuable than testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, they accepted that it was the Lord's will that Paul should travel to Jerusalem. What is God's will for you? May that will be done. For his glory. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we open our hearts to you, in our flesh we would recoil from a message like this. There's nothing about a message like this that makes us feel comfortable. There's nothing about a message like this that makes us feel personally safe, necessarily. Although we're always safe in your arms. Lord, there's nothing about a message like this today, that if we're going to be selfish and self-seeking, we would like to respond to. But we're asking you, as we've talked about earlier, to give us the desire to have the desire to do your will. That when we're faced with the things that would cause us discomfort, inconvenience, and even perhaps dangerous situations, but we know you're calling us to do them, or those that we love are being called to do them, may we surrender our hearts to your will. And Lord, the first step we all know is for anyone to give their heart to you. For each of us are in need 
of a Savior. Each of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the gospel. All of us have fallen short of your grace. None of us can earn it. None of us can merit it. And yet you provide it freely through your Son who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. Is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so this morning, there may be some here today who've never made a profession of faith in you, Lord. I pray that they would. And I pray that as they come forward to receive communion, that would be the sign that they've surrendered their hearts to you. Confessing their sins, asking for forgiveness, repenting of their sins, and asking you to be their Lord and Savior. But I also pray that if anyone doesn't feel that way, that they wouldn't come to this table. For only those that are truly worthy in you can receive communion properly. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that each and every one of us would be challenged to our core and that for those of us who know you as we receive communion, that we would surrender our hearts to your will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.